All right. Well, welcome to the show, everyone. This is literally everything. This is our second episode. How did you feel about the response to the first episode? Fantastic. Tough to know. You know, uh, I see all these likes on Instagram and I'm like, yeah, they all listen to it. Fantastic. And then I, you know, reality sets in that I would probably just also like a thing like that and then like move on with my day. Yeah. But um, no, I got some. It's the greatest is when like you hear from someone who wasn't in your imagined listener. Like, you know, there's like a few people who conglomerate to become this like hyper object human who's like my imagined listener. Mm. And and then you're like, oh, man, that guy listened to it, too. Like, that's so tight, you know? Yeah. That probably, I don't know if that does anything for you as the audience to hear that. <laughs> you could be that guy that makes me happy for a fleeting eight to ten minutes. For sure. No, I mean, I, I just wanted to say, well, in terms of show news, like, keep keep tuned. <laughs> keep tuned. We're, we're setting up all the infrastructure. You know, this is a DIY project, Project of Passion for the two of us. So we're setting up stuff like in, an Instagram and Twitter um, that you can follow. And we're going to try and get the podcast up on all the platforms where you can actually subscribe to it. And so follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm huge underscore reality on both. Um, and that's the best way now to like keep up with it. And we're going to, we're going to let you know other ways. Yeah. And we'll aim to drop it every Friday. Unless you hear otherwise. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that that's working right now for our schedule, but um, I'd like to get it earlier if possible. Like Thursday is a better day, just in my mind, for, for releasing podcasts than the end of the week. Interesting. Well, you should debate that Because uh, it's offline. a commuting activity. Well, anyways. If, oh, well, in that case, Monday. Yeah, Monday is a great time. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways. Um, True. Great point. Today, since we didn't get to talk about Under the Silver Lake or anything or Mary Gates go, we're just going to get into it. It's already been 10 minutes, though. Oh, yeah. Not counting what we're going to go. Like, wait, I, I got to say one thing about the state of Colorado. Okay, go for it. My girlfriend's mom for my birthday got me a shirt that's like basically like kind of like the Colorado flag on a shirt. And it's a cool I said, flag. It's a cool flag and it's a cool t-shirt and I liked it. But I said to my girlfriend, I don't want to bring this. We were going to, to Colorado for a week where she's from Denver. I was like, I don't want to bring this because it's like wearing the band's t-shirt to the concert. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, but in Colorado, that's like how everyone relates to themselves. So, and so yeah. I, <laughs> But then wouldn't they think I, you, then you would have looked like a local? Yeah, yeah. I, and I think I did. I wore it. No one like said anything, like just like nods of recognition. And then I like saw like Colorado paraphernalia like everywhere. And I mean, I, guess, I don't know, like you had a California flag in our dorm room in college, but this felt like a little different. Maybe because the t-shirt was like a little small on me. It felt like really as being gripped by that. Yeah. That scene. The California flag was more just like arrested development. Like I just was bringing bring a little bit of home with me and identifying way too much with where I was from, I think. Um, but there is like also the, like the, the streetwear aspect. Like there's people all the time who wear California shirts here. It's not just a flag. It's just not the flag. You know, those, those shirts, everyone used to wear them like in the first half of Wait, this decade. Like, it's like in three, it's in like three lines, like Cali, four, yeah. nine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the bear. Yeah. I mean, the bear is great. The bear is awesome. Like, you know, that's what's great about the, the the Western United States is instead of flags based on 
like a slave empire. <laughs> they have flags with letters and animals. Yeah. Yeah, it's That's great. Probably. I love to see. It's a good it's good graphic design. And it's pretty it's a pretty state too, from what I saw from your Instagram. Oh yeah. Um you've never been there? I've been to I've been there for a wedding too. I was there in Boulder. Um, but Vale seemed even more dramatic. But Vale's really dramatic, dramatish, because it's all like supposed to be a Swiss like mountain town and everything like a lot of stuff's in German, which was interesting. And um it set it actually set me up. So there was like this really funny uh, obsession that I have with reading boring panels. Um, well, that's not necessarily funny, but it became funny. Oh my because... god, dude! I remember being in the museum with you at oh, Budapest. So sorry about that. Where sorry. you were like, it is an art museum. It's in Budapest. Story. It was like not a very good collection of like paintings from the 15th through 17th centuries, and you were just like reading the caption for every single painting. I'm like, these suck. Why? Are you, why do you need to read them? I know. You, like and. Like anyone who's been to a museum with me has that story, and I just wish I like could get rid of this habit. Um, but so in the hotel, in the hotel where the wedding was, is this place called the the Zonen Alp, which means like sunshiny Alp or something. Yeah, Sun right? Alps. Uh, uh, Sun Alps. Sun Alp. So like they had the, all these panels about that. Um, it wasn't just like we're going to do a knockoff of Germany. The people who built the Zonen Alp had resorts in Bavaria, and. And it like gives you the history of that. And I was like, oh, this is going to be really interesting. And so then like right before getting in the car to go home, I still hadn't read it. I'm like, I'm not getting in the car until I read those fucking panels. So I start reading them and it's extremely boring. Um, but the one funny thing was like a lot of stuff with Germany. Like, so it's like a history of this hotel company and basically this family and like how they ran hotels. And the panels just kind of like, there's a lot of information until the 1920s. And then nothing. And then in the 1950s, they picked up and had a lot more activity. That's funny. I mean, actually, a lot of if, if, when they do it in Germany, I, I don't think they feel they can get around it. I mean, if you go to the Mercedes-Benz Museum in Stuttgart, which is where my wife is from, like they they get in depth in the into the Nazi period, and they are very um, honest about their collaboration, um, enthusiastic collaboration with with the regime. Okay, but today, but get, now that we're done with that, the museum in, in Colorado stuff, the we'll talk about, what are we going to talk about today, Ethan? Uh, we're going to talk about this mural in a uh, public high school in San Francisco, and it's getting covered up, and Max will explain more about that. And then we'll segue into kind of comparing all the issues at play in this moment, epiphenomenon, whatever, with... Um, the Danish cartoon controversy of the mid 2000s. That's right. And if you don't remember what that is, we'll talk yeah. about it. So what's going on right now is the the reason we decided to talk about it is because you sent me this op ed by Barry Weiss, and I think you should probably. I did a full disclosure that my brother works at the magazine, so he has nothing to do with the op ed page. But you should probably do a full disclosure at this point. Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, Barry has been a friend of mine since college. I'm not like claiming to be super close personal and confidant, but um, her writing has elicited a lot of strong opinions on the internet, um, but we're not really going to deal with her larger body of work in that sense, because at least for me, I wouldn't really be able to be objective. That's fully disclosed as far as I'm concerned. Um, she wrote an op-ed column about it. So just so you to give you some background, um, 
George Washington High School is in San Francisco. Uh, it's in the Richmond district. I used to skateboard there in high school. Um, good spot. It apparently, I never knew about this. It has a mural in kind of above a stairway, kind of going up the stairs and then going down the stairs um, called The Life of Washington. And it was painted by one Victor Arnautov, who was a Russian immigrant. He was a communist and he was a kind of colleague or disciple of Diego Rivera. So the mural is very much in the in the style of Diego Rivera's famous murals in the social realist style, in the political style um, that you all know of it and you probably have, have seen before. Um, so it was painted in the 1930s uh, with support from the WPA, like the WPA, which was one of, you know, the New Deal um, alphabet soup things where they paid where they paid for public art, basically, and probably other stuff. I don't really know that much about it. But what's interesting about this uh, this mural yeah. is that you know, because it's by this left-wing guy, it it depicts the the historical truth about George Washington, which is that he owned slaves and that he was involved, uh, kind of like dealing with the twin um, original sins of America, which is, you know, slavery and um, the genocide of Native Americans. And it depicts both of those things, including a fairly graphic image of some settlers walking by a dead body of a Native American and George Washington's kind of on the side, kind of pointing at this image saying like, go West young Americans. And so uh, an interesting piece of art, but the school board in San Francisco has decided that this mural with its depictions of slavery and violence could make students feel unsafe in their school. And so they've decided to get rid of it. And, and what Barry Weiss is talking about in her column, she's a kind of contrasting it with the famous um, curtain affair where, what was his name? John Ashcroft, the um, attorney general, like put up. Uh, Bush, Bush, King Bush, the second. Yeah. He had put like uh, curtains over the spirit of justice statue, which was a you know a woman in traditional uh, in the traditional manner, she was topless, and he covered it up. And she was pointing out that they they decided not only we're not going to put a curtain over it because that means that sometime in the future, like they can uncover it and then students would be harmed again. They have to get rid of it. But in, 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 you're back at with the mural yes, in San Francisco. Right. That- they're not going to, and, and also you could have, there's like paint covering, but the, the, they don't want to do that. They want to yeah. destroy it. Oh, I thought that they were just going to paint over it. Uh, no, I think that in the end, the, let's see, this, the school board's vice president says, um, so one person wanted to paint it down, one of the commissioners, but the vice president um, said that uh, that's not an option because it would allow the possibility of them being uncovered in the future. Okay, sorry. Anyways, um, I'll just read one quote from from Weiss's column. One of the commissioners, uh, Fauga Moliga, said before the vote on Tuesday that his chief concern was that, quote, kids are mentally and emotionally feeling safe at their schools. Thus, he wanted, quote, the murals to be painted down. Uh, Yes, right. And then this is exactly the quote. uh, Mark Sanchez, the vice president, Simply said, same, simply concealing the murals wasn't an option because it would, quote, allow for the possibility of them becoming uncovered in the future. I read that to mean co- concealing, meaning using a, a curtain. 
Yeah, I guess it's not. It could be a curtain. Could, I'm think there's like a, a similar thing happened in the Hagia Sophia Mosque um, in Istanbul historically, which I might get to later. But where um, they there were depict right, there so were frescoes or mosaics so of religious yeah, content because uh, it was a church, and when it was conquered, they covered them up, right? Well, yeah, well, it's even more complicated um, in the, so the Hagia Sophia was built by Justinian in like the 500s. And, and then in the ninth century, there was this iconoclasm controversy where the leadership of the Byzantine church decided that icons were bad and they destroyed like a ton of the original icons, not just covered, but destroyed. But some were, not all of them were destroyed, I, I think. And I think some were like re repainted. And then in, um, I think it was like 1462, give or take, the Ottoman Turks conquered Istanbul and converted uh, the church into a mosque. And what they did an interesting thing, which is that they painted over it with a plaster that could be removed, which is like a really interesting call. They didn't destroy it. They didn't uh, leave it be visible. And and it, in this case, was um, like the faces of various angels. Mm. And some of them, they painted wings covering their faces. Mm. And then in the 30s, I think the early 30s, um, when Turkey was founded as a modern republic. Uh, the Secular the republic, yeah. Secular republic. Uh, the president, uh, Kamel Ataturk, made, um, he said that Hagia Sophia would no longer be a mosque or a former church. He wanted it to be like a secular building, like a repository of Turkish history or, or of history. And they were able successfully to uncover some of these original frescoes that had been covered in like the 15th century. Yeah. Um, and that's how you see it today. Yeah. When, when you go to Google. Great. And we can talk a little, we need to, we should talk sometime about um, Saudi, like Wahhabi iconoclasm. Oh yeah. I got, I got all kinds of iconoclasm thoughts and for sure we'll have lots of occasion to, to talk about pictures that are or are not covered. I think it was 1453, by the way. Oh man! But I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm the literature guy. I'm supposed to know. <laughs> the guy, the guy who did it, I think was Mem- Mehmed the F- Mehmed Fatih, Mehmed the Conqueror. And my favorite, yeah. my favorite soccer player is Mesut Özil, who's a, a German of Turkish heritage, and he has like he lives it, in London. The one who just- no, he, I saw like a crib style YouTube video with him, and he has a room that's like basically a gigantic sarcophagus made out of Turkish marble, and he has a painting. <laughs> he has like a portrait of, of Mehmed the Conqueror. I thought it was so tight. Um, I think that soccer player just had um, uh, the president of Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan, yeah. uh, officiate his marriage yes. to a former Miss Turkey. He did. Um, that was controversial. Patriotic fellow. Yeah, well, he's had say. lots of controversies about his um, his relationship with Erdogan. Like he resigned from the German national team basically over that. And he also just dyed his hair blonde on another note. And he looks like Megan Rapino. <laughs> well, everyone in soccer wants to look like yeah. her right now. Okay, so back to the mural. Um, so, what do you? I mean, what is your take on this whole situation? Um, well, so what I'm interested most is bringing a semiotic lens to this. Okay. Uh, and so, what I mean by that is, like, one you know, giant part of the study of literature is is semiotics, which means the study of how signs work and how we interpret them. So, Max, do you mind if I do, like, a short thing about signs and why it, I'm going to use that to talk about the mural? Well, it's interesting, but couldn't like, couldn't we talk about that later when we're talking about Assad? Because uh, Saba Mahmoud 
like talks about this kind of stuff in her essay from that same yeah, book. Yeah, but I think it applies to both. Okay. But like, well, I just wanted to kind of have it be out there for both. Because it's really, it's basically, here's my thing about all this, is that the way we use words and the way we use images and icons, they are tied to ideology, but often in in complex ways. Mm -hmm. And part of the job of a critic or a scholar or, or any kind of critical thinking person is to think through how these, you know, how words mean what they mean. Uh, and circulate and function and the same with images. So all, all I was going to say, like vis-a-vis this is it, what I think we're going to get into and I'll prime you for something is there's a semiotics here of signs, in this case, the images in this mural being harmful uh, emotionally um, and, and otherwise, or like in a, in a sense of health harmful. Yeah. And harmful because of what they depict, harmful because um, that board vice president um, that Sanchez. you were quoting earlier, yeah, Mark Sanchez, not the quarterback, Mark Sanchez, but a different one, said that a grave mistake was made 80 years ago to paint a mural at a school without Native American or African American input. For impressionable young people who attend school to have any representation that diminishes people, specifically students from communities that have already been diminished, it's an aggressive thing. It's hurtful. So... That, it, that this representation diminishes people and, and that it was made without the input of the um, descendants of the subjects who are in the representation. I, th- I want to just like unpack that, you know, what's at stake in that type of semiotics or in that type of interpretation of this sign, this visual sign and how Well, works, yeah, because he's kind of does. going at it from both sides, right? I mean, there's the question of what, what effects does the image produce on someone who's looking at it? And that's the question of doing harm to the students. And then there's the issue of what was the intention behind the work? Was it well-intentioned because he didn't speak or didn't get the input, um, whatever that means, from Native American and African American people? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's also interesting that there's like a very specific, you know, I think we're sort of used to in, in all politics, but especially in this moment where kind of everyone's backgrounds are being um, re-examined in, in the history of different artists and public figures, um, that there's like a litmus test and you can pass it or fail it based on certain political commitments. But here, I think, and this is why I think it's like an interesting piece that Barry selects is, you know, it's not just a matter of like, oh, well, this is a piece of history. Be, you know, it, it's our history, you know, love it or leave it. It's like, he was a communist. He was an immigrant. He was, you know, like intimately involved with, Mexican socialist realism, you know, he, his, his political commitments were, were all the ones that would align, you would think, with the politics of the people who now object to this, which is a commitment to exposing the injustices and hidden crimes in mm-hmm. American history. Yeah. But so, I mean, I guess it's interesting that that's, that yeah, I mean, to, um, for sure. Relevant. I'd like to, to contrast it with another, um, recent San Francisco event, like they decided to change the name of, of a playground near where I went to high school and the Presidio it's called, it was called Julius Kahn playground. I'm not sure if it still is. Um, but people raised the fact that Julius Kahn was, he was some kind of city father from well over a hundred years ago. And he was involved in the kind of anti-Chinese populism that was one of the main political forces at the time in the city. 
Um, and so they decided to change the name and that's the kind of thing it's, it's, it's equivalent to taking down kind of a the taking down of Confederate statues, um, which has been such a, such a flashpoint recently. But in my opinion, that's totally legitimate. And, and in fact, changing the name brought to the fore and an uncovered history, the history of this figure who is mostly forgotten and the history of Chinese anti-Chinese racism in this city which is not discussed very much. So it actually did the opposite of erasing history by taking this guy's name away from the park. It actually brought those to the fore. And this is not following that dynamic at all. Yeah. And I think, I, and again, this will be fodder for like lots of future episodes. I, so I was telling Max over email that I'm going to, I'm working on this kind of like personal, like psycho late up at night, like intellectual mm-hmm. project it's like not one that's gonna like get me tenure or anything but i want to kind of like i'm trying to gather together a list of all the imperatives or all the like i call it like the 10 commandments but there's more than 10 of identity politics and just not to say oh like right now the identity politics debate is so you know it's polarized between like you either buy into all this or or the people who reject it are like rejecting it sometimes i think on i don't know cynical grounds and I want to sort of just like a lot of the ideas at play here come from academia and I'm interested in tracing their roots in academia and and then assessing like how far they've traveled from their sort of like intellectual roots to the way they're being um, manifested. And, and one of so one of the sort of like imperatives I feel like in this moment is there there are people, groups who've been erased from history and we should not continue to erase them. In fact, we should shine light on those groups and those events, you know, and, you know, this goes back to when I was like, I feel like in middle school, at some point, someone was like, Hey, Christopher Columbus, he did a bunch of really bad stuff. He didn't just like have a rhyming couplet and discover America, you know? And so, yeah, like Max, how do you think that this, do you think that this just reverses that sense of uncovering history this the mural well it's difficult because i mean this this comes the the question is like is is this kind of are these images doing justice to let's say just take native americans for now i mean on the one hand you do want to tell the truth about what happens to native americans um in our history but the problem is, and I think that you would probably know a lot about this from from like studying the Holocaust, is that if you focus too much on victimhood, on subjection, on the things that happen to a group of people, then they end up not having any agency. And I remember from a seminar that I had that happened to have someone who does Native American history in it, he said, you know, the history of Native Americans is not is one of genocide, yes, and displacement and tragedy, but it's also one of survival, right? Because they still exist today. And that's important to remember. So yeah. you want to tell the story of their survival and how they survived as well. And that gives them not only um, the dignity of telling the truth about their story, but also the dignity of, of g- still giving them agency in their story. So I do think that like that is one that is one legitimate complaint about something like that mural to be made. I, I, I'm not saying I think it's justified to destroy the mural. I think, you know, we haven't really said this yet, but I think by now it should be clear. We both think it's maybe well-intentioned, but wrong to, to uh, destroy the mural. Um, well, so to say, like, tell us why you think it's wrong. 
I think that as a work of public art, it has value. Um, it has value not only in the history it depicts, but also in what it tells us about 1930s in America and how it was uh, a radically different society and they had ra radically different values um, and an understanding of the public sphere um, than we do, than things we take for granted now to... Just the fact that, like, like, like um, just sense? the fact that that kind of mural could be painted uh, with and funded by federal dollars, is is to me oh. interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's I hadn't even thought of that. that. Like basically, like the federal government was down with like a committed communist painting like the bad parts of American. Yeah, history. I think it's it's like it's a document of of the of the New Deal. In addition to being potentially, I mean, this is just pot potentially a pedagogical instrument where students would learn something from looking at it. I mean, the social realist philosophy of, yeah, it's, it is kind of like, like people, like the whole debate over icons, that the idea that it can have a pedagogical value, I'm not sure if I totally buy that. Um, but I mean, the, another reason, let me just move on. Another reason, you know, is that it's not yeah. clear that there was harm being done to the students. Okay, well, yeah, we'll s l l open that up a little. I mean, I have thoughts about that too. That's like well, there just hasn't been the, the the whole kind of the school board are the actors in this. They, it, they're not responding to to student outcry over this over the mural. Well, what they're saying is the students are young and impressionable, so they might not know. It's it's interesting because that's that's often an argument you hear from the right wing against this yeah. kind of stuff, which is like. Students don't know their ass from their elbow. They're they're too young. They haven't been formed yet. And we need to instead instead of being a vocabulary of protection, it's more just this vocabulary of like shape them. But which is also interesting. Normally, saying we're going to remove things um, that impinge on your freedom to blank is a right wing like vocabulary, like you know, okay. sentence kind of. We're, we're going to remove impediments to your freedoms in, and that's here is the freedom to like not be hurt or whatever, uh, as opposed to normally the more liberal orientation is putting in positive content to shape, you know, young subjects or whatever, or any subject And here. It's yeah. Right. So this, the, the kind of salutary effect of more knowledge, more information is very much the liberal, the liberal idea and that it can inoculate you against all sorts of, all sorts of issues like prejudice, um, ignorance, those kinds of things that cause social ills. Yeah. Well, I mean, and so this thing about like hurt and harm, I mean, it, that, it just like worries me a lot because, it, because of the impressionable aspect. So like I was thinking as I was reading it and I was like, maybe it was reading the letter to the editors that the school board sent back yeah. to the New York times. And it's like, and they said that, um, Basically, they're responsible for the emotional well-being of the students and that this painting has traumatized students for 80 years. So I was thinking about in, in Notre Dame, that church who, when it was on fire, everyone on earth was like crying about it, even if they weren't Catholic or religious. On the very front of the church, on the facade, is a famous um, iconographic pairing from medieval art, which is called a, a synagogue ecclesia. Uh, where there's a representation of the church as a tall, upright, I think it's a man, but it might be a woman, but tall, upright, strong, and like 
you know, clear-eyed looking off into the distance. And then synagoga is represented as a woman who is hunched over and has a blindfold on, which is to say that the synagogue, the Jewish representational space, or sorry, um, religious space, is blind and, you know, not fully, you know, can't stand on its own because it's a worldly religion. It's blind to transcendence, basically. Yeah, it's blind to the 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 light of Christ and all that, and that and that's you find that all over medieval art, and that representation of Jews has for sure led to real world harm. And that's another thing we haven't brought up yet: is is there a connection between "Ooh, that hurts my feelings" and "That's offensive"? Even if even if all these students said "That's offensive" or "That hurts my feelings," which they haven't, but let's say they had, is there a connection between that and real world violence and harm? Well, in the case of European Jewish history, for sure, you know. And, um, you know, crusades or whatever else you have. But, and I remember like learning about that in like an art history textbook or actually I think originally in like a Holocaust class when learning about like the antecedents to European, uh, modern yeah. European antisemitism, like you know, where did it, what kind of images did it source? And then when I was in Paris for the first time, I saw it. I'm like, okay, you know, that sucks. That sucks. Europe like hated Jews for deep theological reasons and did a whole, whole bunch of bad shit. But like, if I, I wouldn't want to topple that statue in order to remove that hurt because that hurt is part of my history. It doesn't erase the positive parts of my history as a European, as a you know, child of European Jews. But so, because you, you were asking about like the Holocaust and stuff, and the whole idea of like Holocaust memorialization, right? Is that um, yeah, you know, you don't want to make it that these people had were nothing but victims. You know, and not every piece of art can encompass all the messages you want to say about memorialization, but that you memorialize trauma. You don't, memorializing trauma doesn't reinflict it. In fact, if you don't memorialize it, you know, people are bound to forget and then that's more dangerous. Yeah, I, I would say two things. I mean, one about, okay, so medieval art and its depictions of Jews, I don't, I mean, that. You're right, probably it did have some kind of connection to real life violence. I'm not sure. Um, oh, well. But I would say, yeah, I mean, it, it, sure it's a reflection. It I would say it's a reflection. It could be a, just simply a reflection, a symptom of the same cause. You know what I mean? Um, but I would say, like, when Jewish people see that kind of thing, like you said, it's, it's not necessarily re-traumatizing people. I'm not sure that it is. But I would say that things like Nazi imagery do actually cause psychological harm in certain cases um, to people who are sensitive to that. And and in many cases, I mean, there are at least very strong social norms against that now. And in many places, it is, you know, illegal, like in Europe, um, in Germany. Oh, the point is not in the U.S. Yes, true. Like the- Secondly, oh. one of the main reasons people don't, wouldn't argue to take down the the art in Notre Dame is because it quite clearly has merit as art. Right, as a as an but that's not only as art and as an aesthetic object. Right, it is a different the, vocabulary. These people, the board would say that 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 would be irrelevant to them. Right, and and that is kind of what uh, that is what I disagree with. They they're saying it shouldn't be weighed against the artistic merit of of the imagery in question, and I think it should both both as you know meritorious in its own right and as a document of the of the time that produced it. But I would also say, I mean, what's interesting, you, you talk about the Holocaust, it made me think of Susan Sontag on photography, because her whole point was images from the camps in the Holocaust 
they don't re-traumatize people. They have the opposite effect of anesthetizing people to the horrors of the Holocaust. So it's a completely, uh, the complete polar opposite of this kind of vocabulary around harm and trauma and its relationship to imagery and, and words. Yeah, and that's also just an interesting thing of how far we've, I think there's two changes there. One is like a lot's changed since, since even since Susan Sontag, but also the distance between, again, the academic and intellectual sphere where some of these ideas are generated and then the way they get used or appropriated in the public sphere, you know, often without, you know, kind of like a full accounting of, you know, just all, all the possibilities. I don't what, what I think is, um, I'm going to read something I wrote in closing on this, but it's really. Okay. And then we're going to take a break. Excellent. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, representations. This was from a thing about Talal Assad, which we'll talk about next, that um, manifest themselves in terms of political uh, or cultural embodiment are misleading and remain misleading as long as the semiotic processes involved are understood as self-evident. So what I mean by that is if we just say, oh yeah, this represents this, that's self-evident. We don't need to open it up or interrogate it or question it or, or, or are there more than one possibilities of reading how these signs work? Like some people say, Nazi Im- like images of the camps traumatize them. Susan Sontag says that um, it deadens you and, and a third person might say it educates you. Um, those are three very different possibilities from the same image, you know, and of course there's so many more, you know, and you have to open up, I'm calling it the semiotics, but you know, just the, the mechanics uh, to, to a discussion. And I think that's really the problem here is that it's being treated as if there is no discussion to be had here. We have, re- we know exactly how this works and that's not up for debate. That's to me like even more unconvincing than all the arguments about hurt and stuff, which I'm also not fully convinced by, but that's in harm. But the least convincing thing is the sense that it's like a closed, a closed topic. Yeah. And I would also say just in closing that this kind of, uh, this whole question is not a new question. It has been central to political philosophy since the first work of political philosophy, Plato's Republic. A huge part of that is about the education of children and whether they should be allowed to read poetry. And he said, no, they shouldn't be able to read poetry. It's going to harm them. They're going to they're gonna imitate these gods who act evil. They're going to imitate these heroes who cry and weep like women. So it's always been a question of like, how does art, how do representations, imitations, how do they impact young children, their, you know, supple minds and their, and how there can be political ramifications of that. Yeah. All right. So we're going to take a break and we'll come back and continue, continue the conversation. Okay. We're back. And the next kind of segment we're going to do talking about this whole issue it relates to what ethan was ethan was mentioning this this letter in response to barry weiss's article from from the two members of the school board that have been quoted in the piece and what they were saying in response was noticed i think we both noticed that they focused a lot on the emotional well-being of the children is something they said and 
then they talked about traumatizing students. And what I, what struck me about that was how medicalized it was. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that within liberalism, which is like the dominant vocabulary uh, of our time, especially in, you know, mainstream media, mainstream discourse, it contends with conservatism a lot, but it is the dominant one. The vocabulary for talking about social problems in general um, is medical. Well, there's two main vocabularies that liberalism depends on the most. It's a, it's a legal vocabulary and a medical vocabulary. I want to talk about the medical one now. We are kind of were gesturing towards it earlier. It is striking to me. I mean, I, I don't want to challenge the idea that stuff like this, experiencing racism, seeing racist imagery can cause harm. I do think it can cause harm in that way, emotional harm. It can traumatize people. I don't think that PTSD is bullshit. I don't think that students are snowflakes. I don't believe in any of that. What I, I, what I don't want to do is kind of parrot the conservative critique of PC culture. But I do think it is worthwhile to look at and think about the, the sh possible shortcomings of using relying so heavily on that vocabulary because that really is they're, – they're going back to that again and again, the emotional health of the students, mental health, this kind of thing. So it's kind of – there's two levels to it. There's a f almost physical level to it. And you've noticed, I'm sure you've noticed, I mean, the, in the past decade, how much people talk about bodies in terms of especially racism and also in, uh, sexism, patriarchy, stuff like that. It's become more and more pronounced. Um, and this is, this is kind of the decade of trauma and anxiety that have become, they've become so central to all of our art. In Holocaust studies, we've been doing trauma since, <laughs> yeah. you know, 80s. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I found this article on Slate, which was covering um, a study recently about trigger warnings. So trigger warnings are meant to be almost like preventative care for students who are, who are from marginalized communities or have been tra traumatized by experiencing um, violence or oppression in, in many different kinds of ways. So it's, it's basically to say trigger warning or content warning tells people before they read a text, watch a movie, et cetera, warning this contains material that shows sexual violence, for example, and that might trigger you, that might cause you to have relive your trauma um, and experience both like the emotional, physical harm that that does, right? So that's what a trigger warning is. And the article, I'm not going to get into it too much, the article makes the argument or suggests based on this study that in fact giving people a trigger warning before they experience a text can in fact and this was a study by psychologists this was a, this was a clinical study it it can actually produce an anxiety response that's worse than when than when the subjects are simply given the texts that that have the triggering material in it and what I and I don't know if this is completely true. The author her herself um, expresses some skepticism, um, and it does kind of seem like the people who did the study are a little bit like anti PC crusaders. They're like kind of like facts don't care about your feelings kind of guys. And I and I do have some skepticism myself. I'm not sure if it's like conclusive or anything like that. But it made me think that when that one of the shortcomings of this medicalization of inequality is that it can actually create an environment where you're constantly producing traumas. 
right? And you're not, it's not about kind of getting rid of the sources of trauma. It's about dealing with the trauma and bringing it up and up again. One of the main points of the trigger warning uh, study was that it said that it reinscribed this idea that the trauma in, in subjects, it, re- it reinscribed the idea that their mm-hmm. trauma was central to their identity. And I think that this kind of vocabulary of talking about students as potential trauma victims, uh, very fragile, it can create in them this, this idea that that kind of harm is central to their identities and it can just produce an environment where you're always thinking about that trauma and trying to manage it rather than trying to produce an environment where, you know, justice is sought, for example. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I think there's two different like potential goals. One is like, what is the most therapeutic from like a medical perspective approach? Yeah. And then there's what is the moral or political goal that we're aiming for? And I think those get kind of lumped together in, um, in, in, in when, in fact, they might lead to quite different pathways. Wanting justice, like, like, like let me just give you an example. Like, um, I, I when I was a little kid, I'm the grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and I, I hope to you know talk about that at length at, at another mm-hmm. point. But um, when I was a little kid was the era when Holocaust survivors were first beginning to talk kind of openly and in public about their experience, which was like the early 90s and Schindler's List came out and the Shoah Foundation at USC began taking video testimony. Anyway, there was all these events and, you know, openings of memorials and museums. And I said to my mom one time, everyone in my family thinks this is hilarious, by the way. I was like mm-hmm. eight or nine years old. And I said, you know what, mom, I'm Holocausted out. <laughs> and... It, in the in what was funny was my mom like agreed with me because she was like yeah like I'm sick of this like, I I don't want to go to another you know we have some relatives who are like oh you're going to Scottsdale they opened a little Holocaust memorial in this park you know you have to go see it you know and my mom would be like I got it like we we like eat sleep and breathe it every day in my family because as you would if that happened to your family but there's a thing of it may be valuable to have those memorials for other people so that the the, the society at large learns the lessons and we don't repeat it. But that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, my mom, the child of these survivors needs to go to that memorial and see all that imagery. And you see, so you see how even just in that example, there's a bifurcation between the the, the goal and the, and, and she would, wouldn't go to the point of this is health and this is injuring me. But well, it was fatigue. It was more like the Sontag effect than, yeah, yeah, yeah interesting. There's a public-private thing too. Um, can I just like respond to what you said, and then we'll jump to the next thing? Yeah, I mean, we were gonna we were gonna talk we were gonna talk about like our memories of teaching in the era of trigger warnings. But I was just gonna say, basically, it didn't affect me at whatsoever. I mean, the materials I taught didn't have any of that material. Didn't have any of that content, and the students I thought were not were not so keen on it they didn't seem to care uh, about that kind of stuff so i thought about i mean i thought about giving a trigger warning once i was like am i supposed to do this when i assigned to the prince by machiavelli because he talks about fortune being a woman and like uh, so she favors you know strong young men who will like take her and dominate her the bold yeah but then i just i didn't think it was up to the standard um of potentially triggering material and i thought no yeah, way. So, so yeah, I think, yeah, you can just give me your take. As far as my actual perspective, I, I think that there's just, 
just again, I'm all about like let's make some distinctions here. Um, there's historical suffering that we might want to. The purpose might be to educate our society about what happened to prevent its recurrence and so on. Then there's like group suffering in the present. So you might think of something like mass incarceration of African Americans, an ongoing, uh, unresolved collective trauma. Yeah. And those two, um, you know, versus like when I was talking earlier about like European anti medieval European anti Semitism. Although we could debate whether th- that is is also a living tradition. And how do those two things, collective present group suffering and historical suffering, how do they impact individuals who are members or descendants of the groups subject to those suffering? And I think that there's a little bit of a collapse, like to be a member of that group is to have that collective suffering inflicted upon you. And I think that it just really depends, like, well, which group, which event, and, and to what degree is it traumatizing? Um, on the level of a personal experience. And so I definitely, I'm, I'm with you. I don't like want to wipe all this away and say none of this is, is, is legit. This is all bogus. But at the same time, you know, I mean, being the child, the grandchild of um, people who've undergone quite a trauma in, in the Holocaust, I would argue for sure that I'm a different subject than an American Jew or an American non-Jew who's not um, the grandchild of that family, but I am also a different subject from my grandparents who went through it. And I wouldn't say that like, it's the mm. same, you know, being their descendant. And so whatever type of, um, trauma would be inflicted on them as the survivors is the same as me. Cause I'm a member of that group or a descendant of that group. And I, I just think you can have those distinctions without saying, Oh, therefore like everything goes. I don't think everything goes, but I also think that like with that San Francisco school board example, they're sort of saying that uh, students in the present day would be traumatized in part, for example, by the fact that this artist in the 30s didn't consult with members of the groups that they're descended from. And to me, that that bears a little bit of discussion. Yes, or questioning. Yes. Sadly, we don't have we don't really have much time for that. I would just say like, yes, I agree with you that that treating this as a medical issue that, you know, should be thought of in medical terms and should and have, you know, therapeutic solutions applied to it is a piece of the puzzle, um as is the legalistic question of treating certain forms of speech as hate speech that is potentially subject to censorship as, you know, a threat to public order and threat to create violence against people in, in, in marginalized groups. But I I think that's only the, the beginning. Um, And I do think, you know, the people who are arguing against that kind of this kind of PC censorship thing, it, it tends to be the centrist to conservative People who are saying, yeah, students need to be challenged. They need to be, you know, don't don't shelter them because they end up coddled and weak when they grow up if they aren't exposed to this kind of stuff. I don't think that's to me, that's not that's not an acceptable answer. And what I what what I did want to think about was, are there other ways of thinking of of describing a different kind of vocabulary of understanding what the nature of this kind of harm is? And I, I think it thematic transition trigger thematic transition taking place. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I had been thinking about that, and then I remembered this uh, book is Critique Secular, which includes essays by Tal Al Assad, Sabah Mahmoud, and Judith Butler, um, 
with an introduction by Wendy Brown, and and they talk about they talk about the kind of harm that can be done in a completely different way. And to me, it's it's about addressing the conditions that produce this kind of inequality, that which is critique. You know, you you're you you're using your reason to critique society rather than simply criticism, which is like looking at the the symptoms of the problem, which is what like the medical and legal. Mm. Um, vocabularies are doing they're describing and how they try to rectify it yeah great distinction so so they're they're looking legal the legal and medical um vocabularies are diagnosing the problem judging it evaluating it and and trying to rectify it using legalistic and medical means but it's all just the symptoms right it's all it's all it's mm. not addressing the the core causes and the how it works yeah. So why don't you tell us? So, so you, this is more from this book is definitely much more from your kind of zone. So why don't you tell us a little bit about like the people um, who produce this book and what it's all about? All right. Uh, yeah. Happily. Um, so the book, like Max said, is called "Is Critique Secular: Blasphemy, Injury, and Free Speech," and it stems from this series of events um, in the in two thousand five. A Danish newspaper published um, cartoons that kind of intentionally very offensive to Muslims. And, you know, they had depicted the prophet Muhammad in various uh, offensive postures, including like, like with a bomb in his turban, um, stuff like that. And it was sort of seen as like the, the cartoonist wanted to really push the limit um, to say that in Denmark or in Europe in general, we value free speech above um, religious piety. And, 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 and this is um, sort of like a test case, like when they bring test cases to the Supreme court, but really to the court of public opinion in this case, you know, can these cartoons be drawn and, and everyone just has to deal with it, even if they're um, kind of like maybe the subtle or the not subtle, but the sub message being, hey, if you're a Muslim in Denmark, you have to like be Danish about this and just accept that like we have free speech here and, and that has to trump your um, religious reaction. Yeah. Uh, and so, of course, it, produ- it produced the desired effect, which is uh, Muslims throughout the world were very offended and there was large protests. And, and you also have to remember, it's 2005, 2006. This is, you know, the peak, the most violent year in the Iraq war, very still in the in the immediate, I think, like phase one of the post 9-11, everyone going fucking crazy on Earth. Uh, mm-hmm. And kind of, you know, became a talking point in the debates about, you know, is there a civilizational or political difference between the West, the liberal free West and Islam? You know, um, do you want to say more or shall I continue? No, I think you did a good job. It basically it, it exposed supposedly this harsh distinction between secular free thought and the and religious kind of um, taboos against blasphemy. It, yeah, and um, w- you know, which was seen to be a, a category that has no purchase in the West. If yeah, you're, if you're free and aligned. So into that into that uh, conversation stepped a few academics. Um, I'll just I'll re- I'll be really brief about who they are because um, some of them hopefully will come up later in the podcast. Paul mm-hmm. um, Assad uh, is um, a scholar who really paved the way for thinking about secularism not as a, the default neutral, empty space that you have once you take away the influence of religion, but rather secularism is something that is produced historically. It has contents, it has an ideology, it has a history, and most importantly, a genealogy, which is um, 
it's not the logic of genies, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the uh, it's a term from Michel Foucault, which traces sort of the ideological history um, of of a, of a phenomenon or belief system. And, and Saba Mahmoud, um, who recently passed away, uh, sadly, she was uh, an anthropologist at Berkeley, where Max got his PhD. Yeah. And, and so she was also in this, the, the group of intellectuals and that tendency that Tala Asad initiated and that Salah Mahmoud was affiliated with was called post-secular. So that's not to say they're anti-secular, but that like we now must realize we are not to take secularism um, kind of on faith, but to, you know, look at its production critically. And that's what they wanted to do with some of the secular arguments that were, or secularist arguments that were brought to bear in, in, in the debate about these cartoons, you know, and, and, and they wanted to interrogate all the different terms at play, like free speech versus blasphemy, uh, secular versus religion, and, you know, those type of uh, binaries. They were, and I, I'm going to mostly kind of talk about um, Tal Assad's essay. Yeah. And basically, he said a lot of things. Really complicated essay. It's but very actually, com- yeah, they're both very complicated. I was complaining to you earlier that they ca- they keep saying this is what I'm not doing. Like the obvious questions, I'm not going to answer those. I'm not interested in doing that. And like Judith Butler in her response tries to kind of simplify and explain what they're trying to do. And in both of their responses to her response, they're like, actually, I'm not trying to do that simple <laughs> thing. Um, it's way more complicated. Yeah. Like, so th- it was, they were originally lectures, and I, I, I was able long ago, like even be- it was before grad school, I guess. I don't know why I was learning before grad school. But I downloaded, like, the original lecture, I think from, like, iTunes U that Tal Assad gave, and hmm. it was way easier to follow, like, hearing it orally, which is normally not the case with academic stuff. But basically that he's trying to establish a space for like I was saying genealogies of ostensibly liberal ideologies that, you know, so the liberal ideology says it's defending free speech and democratic rights and that those rights are in conflict um, with Islamic beliefs, such as the belief that those cartoons are blasphemous. And, um, but what Assad goes on to do really is to show that kind of every uh, culture has its, codes of what may and may not be represented. And those codes are shaped by ideologies that are situated in history and in culture. They're not just floating in the air. Yeah. Um, they're, they're contingent and on, you know, a given social configuration and, and the ideologies at play there. So just with, with that, do you, do you want to like respond or translate some of what well, yeah, so he's one. saying he, he has some examples. I'm trying to remember. He talks about like copyright law, for example. Like there's yeah, different ways in which you are limited in what you can say. And so the idea of free speech is really still circumscribed in some ways, like you were just saying. But what I'm interested in and what they kind of were, were very reluctant to, to actually say, but they kind of gesture towards, is like how do they understand the, um, the harm that was done to Muslim people around Muslims, the world. Yeah. Um, Saba, I, I think, I got into that more. Yeah. Um, but he said something. I mean, he talked about basically that uh, this idea that it, like of seduction and, and the idea Ooh. that representing these images, like or, or showing those images around the world, 
represented a kind of violation of the um of the interior of like the private beliefs of people and that basic and that pretty much in 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 the islamic tradition there is no compulsion in in belief right so you're not like you can't compel someone to believe something um but it's you a much much debated translation of a line in the quran yes um <clears throat> So you have the freedom to believe whatever you want, but your uh, public statements are highly like subject to a high degree of regulation because if you're allowed to say whatever, then you can like seduce people um, to believe in in falsehoods, basically. So that means that the, in that sense, the cartoons are a kind of violation of that way of understanding it. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, well, that in in the West we place a great emphasis on what do you actually believe it, it, deep down inside you, and that and Assad points out that comes from very specifically from the Protestant Reformation and the tradition that it is not about the outward signs of your faith like the mass or etc. <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, but I mean, I would um, say this, but it, but it, 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 it's about your inner confession of belief, and what he's saying is that in Islamic law, it's. The, the Islamic law is more neutral about what you may or may not believe privately and personally in your heart, but it is much more active about um, the, what you perform in the public space. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say that that it's not s- simply Protestantism. I mean, Christianity from the very beginning has been um, like the idea of confession has been central to it. And it's about confession isn't just confessing your sins. You confess or profess your faith. So, so but how does that get back to like the like public demonstration of, of, of belief or of, well, or the, of the idea is that like belief doesn't really matter unless you're saying it aloud, right? Like that, that's what yeah. makes belief real is saying it aloud. And that's why, yeah. like, and that's partly why like freedom of religion becomes so important later, um, is be, it, freedom of religious expression becomes important later is because it's seen like you can't have like one of the solutions in like the 17th century to the problem of religious difference was you can believe whatever you want, but you have to, you know, publicly assent to the state religion. Yeah. With this, with the established religion, religion. And the idea is that that's not a valid form of religiosity. That's kind of forcing people to become hypocrites and hypocrisy is very, a big problem for Christians. So they, they ended up getting rid of that um, and saying everyone needs to be able to profess whatever they believe. Um, but anyway, so that's that's not really um, a major point. I was just kind of saying it's 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 it was brought to the fore because in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, but it was not yeah. something that was just invented by by them. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Well, what Assad is basically well, he's driving at a few things, but one of them is that there are certain forms of public speech that we code as being inauthentic or, or not really holding water or weight, at least in this particular moment in the mid-2000s. And he talks about passion. So a, you know, a news you know, video of a street full of uh, uh, Muslim men chanting passionately against these cartoons, that that would be kind of a visual shorthand for like an inauthentic form of political speech, yeah. something that really shouldn't hold water against the cartoonist right to have free speech. Um, and so he also gives like a very detailed history of how passion came to be, you know, viewed as sort of a delegitimate, delegitimating um, accompaniment to belief mm-hmm. and to public 
public belief, which is interesting because I think now we've kind of swung the other way where like anger authorizes like all kinds of things. The last thing was, I mean, um, you know, and again, as Max said with like copyright law, he goes through all these different things where there are limitations on our speech where, where there's an idea that we can just say anything we want, but you know, if I, I can't just, you know, I can't screen pornography in a public school and I can't, um, put my, write my name on top of a book that was written by someone else. Um, there's like legal injunctions against that. I want to read his final thought. He says, um, what would happen if religious language were to be taken more seriously in secular Europe and the preventable deaths, deaths in the global South of millions from hunger and war was denounced as blasphemy, as the flouting of ethical limits for the sake of what is claimed to be freedom. What if this were to be done without any declarations of belief and he had done in all seriousness as a way of rejecting passionately the aspiration to totalized global control? And he goes on, you know, to say like, we have blasphemy. We have things that are unacceptable. We don't call them blasphemy, but we have ethical limits to what can and cannot be said and, and what can and cannot be witnessed. And he's saying, you know, we should push those boundaries to be, in fact, even like more ethical and empathetic and not just be about like a cartoonist right to draw cartoons, but like, you know, why is it ethically unacceptable? Um, for example, the level of economic inequality in the world, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I would we, say, I mean, yeah. what you're describing there, what he described there sounds to me like a lot of what the left is saying right now. And it is, and, and the left can be passionate. I mean, there is this kind of tension on the left where it's saying that, you know, we're coming from this materialist, almost scientific analysis of society. But at the same time, like there is a, a sense of passion and, and the sense that it is blasphemous what, you know, the West is doing in the world. Yeah. And then, Weird. and then, okay. But then to, to kind of really quickly gloss what I, what I got from Saba Mahmoud was sure, she yeah. talks about a different kind of injury here. And the term she uses is moral injury. That's what maybe we should think um, is what was suffered by Muslims when they saw those cartoons and saw that they had been published. And what she talks about is she talks about semiology and the idea of like symbols and signs being separate from a subject. Um, and she's saying that the relationship between a, a Muslim believer and the prophet is not one of that where that kind of epistemological separation exists in rather Muhammad is like this very close intimate relationship um, where the, the, the believer wants to assimilate him into their life. So he's just, he's not only someone who like expounds doctrines and commandments, but an, an exemplar that wants that basically becomes part of their life. And so when, when he's insulted like that, they feel a sense of personal loss and, and a moral loss and her, her, her point, I would say, I mean, if, if I, if I understood it was that that should be th that, the, the, the idea of rectifying it would be a, a kind of moral rectification. And she was, and, and that is like, you've, if you compare that to like a medical or legal vocabulary, she was contrasting it with the legal um, kind of approach. The, the dictates of the law are supposedly neutral. The dictates of, of medicine are supposedly, you know, objective and scientific. Um, she's saying we need to be more subjective and think of people in, in a moral light um, rather than in these supposedly these supposedly neutral but inflected by you know Western ideas and assumptions um, these these other 
vocabularies and means for dealing with competing claims of truth in the public sphere, um, inequalities, discrimination against minorities, things like that. Yeah, like um, I'll read like a, a, a line from, from her talk. For anyone interested in fostering greater understanding across lines of religious difference, it would be important to turn not so much to the law, which like Max, like you were saying, it's like this abstraction, neutral abstraction, as to the, so it'd be more important to turn to the thick texture and traditions of ethical and intersubjective norms that provide the substrate for legal arguments. So that, you know, Islam, the quote unquote West, we all have ethical traditions that are informing what becomes those laws. But we need um, to sort of see that it isn't just a choice between like theirs or ours, but really they intersubjective means like something like international is between nations. Intersubjective is like between subjects. And so, you know, there's norms that kind of bounce between subjects. um, And some of some of those are actually held to be in common if you look at them, not so much through the lens of like, if you accept the terms of the debate of this is the cartoonist free speech versus these like offended Muslims who shouldn't be offended or whose offense doesn't or shouldn't, uh, limit our our Western free speech. She's saying that um, really the like the subject's belief of what signs you know sort of perform ethics and morality in the public sphere. We're all invested in that. You know, there's no uh, subject position that's outside of an of a, a debatable and historically situated investment in signs, basically. Um, yeah, I think I understood most of that. I I just wanted to ask you then, like, do you think that I was right to bring this up? I mean, do you see the relationship that I'm talking about? I mean, I just wonder, is, is, is this kind of way of thinking about it constructive or better than what we're seeing um, in the whole discourse about trigger warnings, about censoring harmful art? I mean... I'm trying to like wrap my head around it because it's easy to think about it in terms of these vast, supposedly like civilizational differences between Muslims and the West. But like in terms of a, a, a diverse high school, I'm like trying to think how you could apply this language of moral harm, for example, to that and think about it in a more, in a more critical way. Um, like how, how do you think that using that can can actually address the the substrate, like you said, like the causes? Like there's a thick that's I mean that's a really interesting idea. Like the, the an anthropological approach to like what is going on in these high schools, how um, how are these kids being shaped by not only like the images around them, but their day to day interactions, things that are kind of captured by the term microaggressions now. Like, how can we think about that more thickly, I guess, would be would be an interesting way to kind of get forward in this debate that's about, like, once again, this high school debate is about censorship versus free speech, right? But just a different kind of set of dogmas, supposedly. Um, and I wonder... Wait, which, what's the different set of dogmas? Um, I mean, the, the, the idea of, like, PC being this new um, kind of puritanism. Right. Like it's, it's often talked about uh-huh. as, as though it's, it's a it's a 
religion itself. You talked about the Ten Commandments of, of identity politics. Oh, yeah. so- I, 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 I think it's operating that way in the in the sense of religion as, as being you know like doc, doctrinaire and not critical. Right, but that's my point. Well, but, because- but my point is, what we want to do is like understand actually how these inequalities and marginalizations, how they actually work on a day-to-day level in the way that like, for example, high school students are living together and learning together, right? Um, rather than this, these other kinds of vocabularies, the identity politics of it, which is um, applying this set of, I don't know, prescriptions for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, okay, I'll try to say one or uh, two things about this. At the end of both Tala Asad and um, Sabah Mahmoud's essay, they talk about the work of critique. Okay, so like, what are critics, intellectual critics, supposed to do in here? You know, and it's more than just saying, "Oh, um, you guys say blasphemy is is bullshit, and we say it's legitimate." It's much more. They're trying to do much more than that. And like you said, for her, it's shifting it out of the the realm of law because she's saying we shouldn't just like redraw Western laws to um, include. You know, you know, gel with the type of things that might offend Muslim subjects because the law is always productive. It's always going to have it produce its own realities. You know that you then have to deal with, but that it's more. I th- I think for her about how you understand the formation of subjects of people and not just like the, the youth. You know, because the Danish cartoons thing is is about a- adults, believers. You know, whatever, and. I think the, the law is a, a, a very tempting sphere when we're talking about issues of justice and injustice, yeah. but emotional harm um, or safety is, you know, tr- is parallel to justice and injustice often, but there are pl- times where they di- where they yeah. diverge and th- they can't necessarily be debated or legislated um, simultaneously and in the same ways. And so I think that like, you know, what are we supposed to do in a diverse high school? Well, what, how do you cultivate values of justice, you know, against the backdrop of American history? That's one question. How does art work? How do visual signs work? That's another question. I think those things need to be understood better on their own terms before you start trying to combine them. That would maybe be, um, you know, I mean, the, the one thing about what Assad and Mahmoud do here is they really go through each thing on its own terms before they do the synthetic work. And I think a lot of people sort of start with finished syntheses of everything. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, it, it, the last thing I'll say is just, it, it's just interesting how like religion was, you know, for you and me, I think it was hugely motivating um, concept to, that, you know, drove us into academia and drove our academic studies. And it's really totally missing from this, these current debates, but I think that's because religion, like politics, does deal with um, morals and ethics, you know, in the relationship between the abstract and the, and the mm. particular, whereas there's something in all this stuff that it has nothing to do with morals or ethics or, or, or justice. It really just comes down to, like, a sort of, like, medical tribalism, like, who has the right to hurt or not hurt? each other without asking, well, what is hurt and why is that hurt? You know, the ethical questions are kind of being um, vacuumed out of this. And all that's left is like a debate over like 
what hurts and you know it sort of sounds like when you go to the doctor you know point to what hurts you know and and then like what should i give you an antibiotic or a band-aid you know which is just like really insufficient so i'm not surprised that you know that people are reacting against these um these type of the solutions that have been offered that far because they're just insufficient to the wounds and the that they're trying to address yeah they are insufficient but i would say that a a lot of people who are uh, opposed to it, um, to it, they're not opposed because they think it's not going far enough, right? They think it's going too far, and so that's why I think that there needs to be an alternative to this two-sided fight. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, from the left. The, yeah, totally. But here, but here's the problem. The problem is when you go to, the, like, for example, the San Francisco School Board people, and you say, "I'm not trying to roll this back. I'm not trying to make this work better," and in fact extend it they don't hear that and and i've had this happen so many times in in different moments in my academic career where i'm saying i'm not trying to turn the volume down on this or that oppression i'm trying to turn the volume up and on you know like to deepen the stakes but if people say that the only way to address this is x and you're opposed to doing x or you critique doing x then you must not really be invested in the project and and that's the puritanism it's the puritanism isn't isn't just like covering things, you know, not looking at things. It's a puritanism of, you know, like with us or against yeah, us. Yeah, I see it. what you mean. I just don't see it as a kind of like I, I, I don't know if like the puritanism metaphor like works for me because to me it's it, what's interesting is that with the, with the medical and legal stuff is it's just it is putatively neutral and objective, right? So you get this like the the machine and it, it's a ticker we tape. Know we know not. it's not, but it's a ticker tape comes out and it says this is harming students. Therefore, the you know recommended therapy is to get rid of it um, to protect the students from it. And then there's no other kind of considerations are are relevant, right? So 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 I mean I agree with you in, in that sense, but I mean the the problem isn't like the fervency of the belief as much as the mm-hmm. um, the kind of confusion about whether it's it's neutral or not, or the, the the seeming neutrality of it that that it's kind of seductive that it seems like oh we can just get a, a binary judgment on things. Um, so yeah, I, I mean whatever we can agree to disagree on that. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to cover? No, I think we will continue to discuss some of these issues in different contexts and in different manifestations because the the, the post secular critiques are really relevant to things beyond you know cartoons and blasphemy and Islam in the West. There's like definitely relevant, probably in ways that we didn't fully you know get a chance to think through. At least I didn't like really think through it enough to to these you know kind of current debates about what can and can't be represented and also to you know what what are the alternatives you know creating alternatives that are viable great okay cool well everyone thanks for listening um like we said you know uh just follow on twitter and instagram we're gonna have a literally everything instagram through our personal instagrams you will soon find out what the literally everything instagram handle is and that We'll drop yeah, and you know, listen, give us your feedback. We love it. Um, we appreciate anything we can get at this point, and we're just starting. <laughs> yeah, All thank right. you, everyone. Till next time. Bye bye.